month's Making Connections News Mountain Talk features quick takes from the fire starters. Six women from around rural America who share stories of personal struggles and local victories as they work to build up and strengthen their rural communities. The fire starters spoke at the closing session of the National Rural Women's Summit where over 200 women from throughout the nation came together in Greenville, South Carolina on October 27th through 29th. The summit was designed to encourage and support rural women leaders who are on the front lines of community action but may not have the traditional titles and resources of community leaders. Here is Anna Clausen, a Minnesota farm girl and founder of Voices for Rural Resilience, Introducing the fire starters. In our communities to create change, fight for justice, and lift up our voices, we need all of us. We need all of us, our whole selves. The broken parts, the hurting pieces, the tiny constructs of joy, and the particles of sunshine. Our fire starters, these brave and courageous humans are modeling for the nation how women bring their whole human self to bear, to create and keep communities. These six women are deeply and authentically engaged in their communities, and they are living out a deep truth or truths of their experience in the world. And when we lift them, those experiences can heal and advance the nation in a just and necessary way. They are truthful and honest, persistent and thoughtful. They carry with them their own traumas, fears and courage. They are healing and they are healers. They are inspired and they are inspiring. They are here. Our first speaker, is a lifelong dweller of Danville, Virginia. She's a Southern Belle, a senior program officer at Danville Regional Foundation. She is exp expanding opportunity to both youth and families of low-income communities of color. She's a coach, a praise partner, a sensitive sister, a wife, and a mother to three children. Please help me welcome Wendy Everson. Good afternoon. I'm so honored to be here to share with you my story and my journey. Throughout my career, I've been interested in the intersections of poverty, opportunity, community, and belonging. As a child, my first experiences of community was on my grandmother's front porch. My mom worked a lot, and I had to spend a lot of time with my grandmom. And that was a blessing, because everybody loved Miss Estelle. And I was honored to be Miss Estelle's grandbaby. And when I sat on the porch, we would watch folks walk down the road, and she would call them over, and she'd ask them, are you okay? Are you hungry? Do you need anything? And it didn't matter where they were the night before, where they lived or who they were, they were part of the community. And no matter what, she took care of her community. She had 10 children. She shared what she had. She was wealthy in so many ways. But that's now how others describe the community that I lived in. My neighborhood was distressed, under-resourced. We were at risk, subsidized, living in projects and in hoods. We were not wealthy. But like so many other folks, I didn't know I was poor. I had everything I needed. I had a safe place, I had a home, and I had family that loved me. And it probably wasn't until high school that I recognized that I had lack. 
and it was one simple question from my high school classmate. She asked me what my parents did for a living. Up to that point, no one in my community asked me what my parents did for a living. They asked who my people were. They asked what tribe I belonged to. They asked how I was doing. But I quietly whispered that my mom had two jobs and she worked in a factory and she worked in tobacco and she did housekeeping on the side to make sure that I had everything that I needed. And the response was, wow, you're so smart. You're so articulate. I would assume that your mom was a lawyer and your dad was a doctor. And that was a Cosby reference for everybody that grew up in the 80s. But that was a picture of successful black life. But in that moment, I started questioning myself, questioning opportunity. Was I lucky? Should I be with this class of folks? What did opportunity and success look like? Who was afforded it? And why was it not available to everyone? For us growing up in poverty, college was the path. And my mom sacrificed everything to make sure that I got there. But it was other mothers and other folks that made sure that I stayed. My cousin, and I apologize, I lost my cousin this year at the age of 44. She was my sister, and we had plans to both go to college. But she had a child at a young age, and so the opportunity wasn't afforded to her. But she wanted to make sure that one of us achieved that goal. And so while she waitressed at the local restaurant, she would, she would send me her, her tips while raising her son just to make sure I had a little extra cash in my pocket and that I didn't give up on the dream because the degree that I received was not just my own. It was ours to share, and it was my community's. She was investing in me like so many other mothers was doing. And she knew that somehow this moment, this year would happen, and she needed me to be home, making a greater impact, more than what she can do. And so she invested in me. And this was not typical of what I was seeing in my community because I saw other mothers, other mothers that were taking care of the community in a special way. And in this last years of work with the foundation, Mothers have been leading the charge in these neighborhoods. I met a woman named Miss Jean, and Miss Jean had lost her son, but she had also lost her grandson to gun violence. And she decided to start mobilizing, but she still worked a 12-hour shift. And I asked, what could philanthropy do what could we help you do? How could we bring together young people, police, and mothers? How could we heal them? What was the answer? And it didn't take a big check, but a small investment in that mother. And in less than two years, in 2017, we had the highest number of homicides in our community. She was able to reverse that. I met another mother, her name was Miss Constance, and she landed in public housing not because she made a bad choice, but she just landed there. But when she had an opportunity to leave, she decided to stay. And she would begin to read books to children under the tree every day after school, not a formalized after school program. 
not thinking that she was going to change the third grade reading level for kids that were in that community. But she did. She did what she could do. And the more she started bringing folks together, her community that was known as one of the most dangerous places where no one wanted to live, now everybody, go, everybody goes. On National Night Out, everybody finds themselves in Cardinal Village, which she calls the village, working with the kids there. These women, these mothers, have helped me to understand my role as a caretaker of the community and have empowered me to share my gifts of coaching and working with young people. They have given me courage to question philanthropy and to rethink how we see and contribute to the assets in the neighborhoods both human and material. They've helped me to rethink the big check, the million dollar check that we often write, thinking that we can solve these issues. They've helped me to understand, like my grandmom, Estelle, to ask first, are you okay? Are you hungry? How can we help? And to be willing to support them in a way that can help them do the work that's meaningful to them and to the community. Thank you. Our next speaker comes to us from Chinook, Washington. She's a small business owner and mother, cake whisperer and cookbook addict, born of the Pacific Ocean. In 2017, she co-founded Rethinking Rural, to support, network, and uplift rural millennials nationally. She's a connector, she's a rural warrior. Please help me welcome Madeline Moore. I grew up on a skinny, 30-mile long sand spit wedged between three of the most beautiful bodies of water in the country, the mighty Pacific Ocean, pristine Willapa Bay, and the mighty Columbia River. The seasons of my childhood were digging for razor clams in spring, fishing for Chinook salmon in summer, crabbing in fall, and running naked, naked on the beach in winter. My life was transplanted here when I was five, when my dad and his friend were asked to spearhead a nonprofit loan fund that would focus on supporting rural livelihoods. In deciding where to put the office of their new endeavor, they chose the community that wanted them the least. Knowing that hard work <clears throat> is never easy and a place so resistant to outside support probably needed it the most. So they bought a small empty cannery building smack dab in the middle of the working port of Owaco. In the early years, after five o'clock or sometimes before, my dad and his partner John Burtis got to know the locals by sitting out on a bench in front of the squat one-story great concrete cannery building to smoke. They'd watch the boats and fishermen move fish from boat to processing plant, offering up a bottle of whiskey when a fisherman would linger and ask, what are you guys doing here? Their first loans were to a family-run a family -run oyster company and a small cannery owner just a few doors down, businesses that traditional banks would not touch. Summers meant loading into the truck with my mom and dad and driving up and down the coast of Oregon and Washington from one small tiny town to the next, meeting dairy farmers, holly farmers, mayors, and lots and lots of fishermen. I, first, I saw firsthand that supporting one key business could turn the tide for an entire community and multiple families and generations along with it. When people asked me what my dad did, they usually got a shrug of the shoulders and uh, he gives money to farmers so they don't lose their farm. He runs a nonprofit, I think. I didn't know what nonprofit meant. I didn't know what rural economic development meant. I just knew that my dad knew a lot of interesting people in beautiful, charming places, and he helped them by supporting what made up their livelihoods. My rural childhood was simple and idyllic, but the idea of staying never crossed my mind. Get out, go to college, get a job, be successful. Success could not be found at home, in a place that had seen its bust generations before and it, which was still wallowing in the rubble, or so I'd been told. 
In 2011, at the height of the recession, I graduated from the University of Oregon with $28,000 of student loan debt and a journalism degree that was proving to be mostly useless in an industry that was tumbling headfirst off of a cliff. I'd followed the rules, I'd gotten out, but a nine to five success story was still very out of reach. So I stuck my degree in the drawer of my childhood bedroom and left the country to work on organic farms through the WOOF program. It was here, standing in fields in the most rural, middle of nowhere parts of Ireland, that I started to think back to my childhood, growing up in places similar to this. I craved the quiet beauty of rural and the ability to be deeply tied to nature and uniquely needed and appreciated by people within the community. Setting, a roots, uh, setting roots among the many people who helped raise me felt right and comfortable, but it meant I couldn't make it elsewhere, that I had failed somewhere along my journey. After three months in Ireland, I moved home, taking over a part of my parents' garden to start a small farm for a CSA and pursuing a dream I'd always had in the back of my mind, starting a bakery. But starting a small business was not a part of the get out, be successful plan, even though ironically some of the most inspiring community members I knew back home were small business owners. When I first moved back, my mom would run into people at the grocery store who'd say, I heard Madeline move back to the peninsula. Is everything okay? <clears throat> but I loved being home. I loved the freedom and hard work of owning my own business, of seeing the fruits of my labor in such a tangible way as a pack of seeds becoming a basket of cucumbers in my market stand. And I loved having a business that could give back to my community the way that I had seen small businesses give back constantly as a kid. Buying my first bakery ad in my high school yearbook was an especially satisfying moment. As my business flourished, I dug in deeper and got involved in local politics. At the beginning, I was the ideal Pollyanna. Good people get elected, period, full stop. <laughs> but a serious run-in with the good old boys club that kept an incredible born and raised female business owner from being appointed to a seat in the state legislature shattered my idealism. I'd always been a big fish in a little pond, and even though I knew my community well, mingling among the politi politically savvy was new territory. I was also often the youngest person in the room, which sometimes left me feeling weak, naive, and consistently shoved aside. Imposter syndrome started to rear its ugly head. When an opportunity arose to run for the local hospital board, and I was asked to run, I laughed out loud. Was my voice valuable at this table? Surely there was someone more qualified, smarter, more experienced that deserved that seat. My opponent had served over 18 years and was a respected doctor. It felt audacious for a 25-year-old with no medical experience to step up and say, no, you're missing someone at this table, and it's me. Eventually, the poking, prodding, and support added up, and I ran and won lowering the average age of the board by almost 20 years <laughs> and, and adding needed perspectives to the table. Over time, working for change just in my community didn't feel like enough. It also felt like doing this work in isolation was crazy in an age of super connectivity. I remembered when I was a kid traveling with my dad. If one business did better, then the community did better. What if young people like myself who were devoted to rural as a piece of their identity could network and work together? It was out of this simple idea and a simple need to connect with other millennials like myself tied to the rural places that they love that I formed Rethinking Rural. The face of this work is changing. The faces of our communities are changing. Despite popular rhetoric, young people are moving back and investing in rural on a large scale, but they often lack access to resources and tools that could help them overcome large barriers that new leaders face within small, insulated communities. Rethinking Rural bridges that gap. We are a national network of rural millennials working together to uplift diverse voices and make small communities more diverse, vibrant, and resilient. Through small place-based symposiums that are celebrations of the culture and the livelihoods of a particular community, we connect local millennial leaders with a national network that they can work together with to achieve the dreams they have for their homes. We'll be in Nauvoo, Alabama in 2020 and Indian country in the Pacific Northwest in 2021. At the same time I birthed an organization, I also birthed my daughter, Quincy, and became mom. 
Watching her childhood follow in the footsteps of mine from sandy afternoons of the beach to walking in local parades has created incredibly deep meaning to creating a vibrant future for our home. Unlike when I was a kid, I am now all too familiar with what rural economic development means and what a nonprofit is. <clears throat> I now consider myself a rural advocate who, who was raised in this work just like a farmer teaches their kid to milk cows or sow seeds. My dad's small rural loan fund is now Craft 3, which spans eight offices in the Pacific Northwest and has loaned $500 million over the last 25 years to help rural people, families, and businesses simply do better. And I'm following in those footsteps in my own way, learning to embrace my special understanding of rural America and finding ways to do the work that will lead to better communities for all of us, led by all of us. For the under 30-somethings in the room who feel like you are banging your head against a brick wall that is generations deep, keep going. Keep digging in. Keep saying, no, my voice matters. I am here. And for the over 30-somethings, look to the future and use your experience and wisdom to uplift, inspire, and cultivate the next generations, even if that generation looks, talks, or swaggers differently than you might. Raise a rural advocate or help lift one into the world to walk with you. Thank you. Savannah Barrett is a 12th generation Kentuckian. She is thoughtful in her words and actions and widely published because of this. The heart and soul of her work can be felt and witnessed best through the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange, a project she leads as the director of programs for Art of the Rural. She is a cultural organizer and a southerner, a mother and a daughter. Please help me welcome Savannah Barrett. I'm coming to you today as the daughter of Kim, Helen, Sally, Sylvia, and Liz, and as the mother of Sylvia June. My story of home and my path to this work is the legacy of seven generations of women who set the spell to bind me to place. It was Memal teaching me to know the trees, Granny stringing beans on the porch, Mama instructed me to find peace and walk in the creek. It was them and the stories from generations of traditions, values, and connection made by walking the land over. You see, women bear memory. From your grandmother's cells, your mother was born with the cell that made you. Women are literally walking around with a physical memory of their ancestors. This memory embodies our connection to land, and that embodied history is the taproot that binds us to place. Rural women are the stewards of this connection, and the work that grows from this root is rural America's most powerful advantage. The work that I want to share with you has grown from weaving these embodied memories together. I was invited here to share insights about my experience over the past year as a new mother who was trying to build a diverse, multi-sector national movement. Now, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have told you that rural generation felt powerfully reflective of a woman growing into leadership. The work felt synergistic. We met with 30 people every two weeks for 18 months because we knew that if people were welcomed into extraordinary places to hear from folks who were different from them, that they would be changed. We traveled 300 miles across Mississippi to bear witness to both the abundance of rural culture and the consequences of decades of disinvestment because we know that our broken systems are the product of a chronic lack of support, not a shortage of visionary people. The result was 250 people from 44 states weaving a more complete story of rural America and Indian country. Gathered in the side yards of the Civil Rights Movement, we were reminded of the potential for relationships to heal communities and challenged to redefine equity 
to include a responsibility to rural people. I'm proud that we made the summit to be radically inclusive and rural in its bones. But when it was all over, I couldn't feel the warmth of the connection. I left the summit feeling exhaustion, defeat, and failure. For all of its connected practice, the summit was largely managed by a single person as just part of their responsibility. And that person was me, five months postpartum, with an unfamiliar body and an unrecognizable lack of confidence, a baby at the breast, without staff or continued funding. So while there were so many beautiful, important moments at the summit, when people from different worlds recognized their lived experience, and so many people, especially many of you, who stepped up to make it work, still I became so stressed and defeated after that gathering that my breast milk dried up for days. So here I was, organizing towards the sustainability and the work while threatening my ability to feed my daughter. I'm learning that the body will demonstrate what the spirit may not want to concede. That when the conditions for making the work risk our ability to nourish the next generation, that we are not making progress. We are carrying our communities with history in the belly and the future at the breast, and we are starving while we pass out loaves. Now, as I tell you this, I confess that I am terrified to say it out loud. But we are called to be vulnerable with one another because vulnerability is the currency of connection, and connection is a healing act. So even though we were raised on resilience, and it feels like betraying our hardiness to admit it, we have to stop saying that we are making it just fine. So often the work made by women, made in the South, made outside of institutions, is praised and referenced and lifted, but very rarely is it funded. The systemic lack of investment necessarily means that the women nurturing our community's future do so without health insurance or the option to build wealth or the dignity of a staff to share the weight of the work together. Now I understand that this work takes time. Relationships are built one by one at the speed of trust. And yet it is beginning to feel like we can align institutions and governments and communities and still not earn the support of a national philanthropy that invests only 2% of arts funding in rural America. Ladies, we are being, ladies, we are not lacking the skills to start our fires, but we are lacking the fuel to tend them. That consistent choice to look, as, to look away makes us choose between the well-being of our family and the well-being of our community. Our choice has always been each other, but here in the wealthiest nation on earth, our, our connection should entice support not excuse the insufficiencies of a broken culture of philanthropy. And so, I'm trying to envision the conditions for nourishment. As I've grown from my experiences after the summit, I have started to look for a way back to all of you. And so I recall what I learned from childbirth. That you can't run from pain, that you have to learn to work with it, and that the pain is sharpest just before emergence. That just like the snake, the moon, and the tulip, all of us have to labor to become. I'm reminded that the work is older than us, and that the fruits of our labor are a return, not an arrival. That all things emerge, grow, rest, and repeat. That it's ancestral progress, working from our grandmother's advancements, so we must labor to become over and over again. And here we are. Each of you are here sharing the story of a place, a strategy, and a group of people working to make your community flourish. Despite our differences, our struggles, and even our imperfections, when we come together to listen to one another's stories, 
We find the value of our own communities and our own value reflected back at us. Our strength will come from our connection because it demonstrates what, that a better world is still possible. In this way, connection is both the starting point and the destination, the root and the flower. Wholeness requires the recognition of someone else's struggle as your own. When I link my prosperity to yours, we become whole and remember that the strategy of division is predicated on the lie of superiority, that for me to live well, you have to live poorly. When the truth is that my survival is connected to yours, that the only path forward is the one we walk together. So let's support each other like our future depends on it. Because it does. Our next speaker is a wife and mother who loves to run, write poetry, and drink coffee. She's the oldest of six children raised by a single mother and was a migrant farm worker who traveled to work in Michigan and West Texas. Today, she resides in Austin and is the Director of Community Outreach and Engagement for Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, where her heart resides. Please join me in welcoming Marlene Chavez. It has been difficult for me to figure out what I should share with a room full of amazing, inspirational women. Because I was not sure if I was the appropriate person to share anything inspiring. Although many describe me as a fearless, independent, and outspoken individual, the reality is that I have been a broken soul, walking on a deserted road, consumed by anger, pain, and hurt. From a young age, it was instilled in me not to express affection or feelings. This was not done intentionally. It was how my grandmother and my mother survived. They experienced complex wounds that left scars that are still felt today. To survive, they suppressed these experiences. For them, it was fight or die. In order to understand this deep trauma, let me tell you a little bit about them. My great-grandfather, Chilino, was left a widower in charge of caring for two little girls. He spent his life raising his two daughters and working in El Campo. He never remarried. People describe him as guarded, reserved, and disciplinary. In other words, he never expressed his emotions. He raised my grandmother. My grandmother was born in Mexico in a time when women did not have choice. Marriage was the ultimate realization of womanhood. She met my grandfather, married him, had five children, and was barely making ends meet. Their marriage became volatile. She was verbally and physically abusive towards her children. You see, she did not want to be a wife or a mother and no longer wanted to endure, endure living in poverty. So she migrated to the US seeking the life she wanted, leaving her family and community. My grandmother became a farm worker in California. The experience of migrating exposed her to a new trauma. She experienced racism, language barriers, and labor abuses. These hardships contributed to her alcoholism, which in turn fueled an unhealthy behavior. When she was diagnosed with cancer on her final days, she never expressed any regrets. But she attempted to reconciliate with her children. I felt the impact of my grandmother's trauma throughout my personal life. The trauma was passed down to my mother, who was also guarded and emotionally disconnected at times. Many, including her own siblings, describe my mother as someone you do not mess with. And I can attest that. I mean, I grew up with her. <laughs> the relationship between my grandmother and my mother was strained due to the abuse and neglect. When my grandmother migrated to the US, she left my mother under the care of my great-grandfather. My mother's most fond memories are with her grandfather, a simple and humble life. 
However, that changed when my grandmother forced my mother to migrate to the US to marry my father. She was only 15 years old and my father was twice her age. My mother had no family support and was left in the hands of a vicious man. I was born on June 7, 1986. She gave birth to an unwanted child, a child who was the product of rape. I was born into a difficult situation, but she was willing to fight for me. I recall the many times my mom would shove my two brothers and I in the closet so my father would not beat us. I would open my eyes only to be blinded by darkness. I could hear my father's harsh, derisive laughter along with her whimpering cries. I was impotent, unable to do anything. I would place my head in between my knees and with both hands I would cover my ears praying that it all would stop. This was my childhood. I learned to suppress these horrific moments in order to survive and kept only the few moments of joy when we were away from my father. My mother making us breakfast, taking us to school, driving to, to McDonald's to order Happy Meals and going to the park. As I grew older, my mother taught us a harsh lesson. Emotions are a sign of vulnerability and the world tears apart those that expose their vulnerabilities. That lesson was embedded so deeply that even the abuse that we suffer was not discussed. I remember the many nights when my mother, instead of asking us to share how we felt, sat in her truck drinking a beer, smoking her cigarette, listening to music. As we sat on the passenger seat, we listened to the stories of her childhood, her sadness, and her trauma. The suppression inflicted more pain and anger because I took on my mother's trauma on top of my own. It was unbearable. I could not recognize my own feelings. I could not talk to my mother about this because she would relive her own trauma. Or I would be told, lo tuyo no fue tan grande como lo que me pasó a mí. What happened to you was not as severe as what happened to me. And that was the end of the conversation. And for a period of my life, I also began to drink heavily to cope with the pain. Today, I understand that I have been battling internally with myself. I have kept my trauma locked in a dark storage room because I was told to keep it there the same way that my mother and grandmother were told to do. Intergenerational trauma has followed my family through the channels of poverty, physical and sexual abuse, forced migration, racism, incarceration, and gender discrimination. It has left long-lasting psychological effects. Rural communities have been exposed to generations of discrimination, violence, racism, and poverty. This perpetuates trauma and re-traumatization. Although I tell my community about the importance of healing, of sharing their stories to inspire others, I sadly have not taken my own advice. As a mother and wife, I recognize how that trauma affects my own parenting and my marriage. One of my struggles has been dealing with my anxiety, being overprotective, and my lack of affection at times. I have caught myself telling my son that crying is not going to solve his problems, that he needs to learn to be tough because the world is unforgiving. In order to heal generations of trauma, there needs to be a full understanding of the effects of intergenerational trauma and realizing that healing needs to take place internally if any change is going to happen externally. I understand now how my mother attempted to break those chains. She got the courage to leave my father, moved to Texas away from my grandmother, and taught us to be strong and independent so we would not experience any more pain. But the trauma did not dissipate. I do not want to pass my trauma to my son. My story is my voice. My story is about healing. My story will break the chains. Thank you. Let's all take a breath together.
and honor um, that story. Michelle is the Rural Program Director at Springboard for the Arts, making artists visible and valued for the community and the impacts they create there. She's a writer, community leader, rural arts advocate and new mom, standing up for introverts, women, artists, small towns, kids, and animals every day. Please help me welcome the unstoppable Michelle Anderson. This is a story about how an award-winning journalist from Germany used my home community in rural Minnesota as an anthropological ground zero about Trump country and fabricated nearly every sentence. How my friend and I, two everyday small town rural citizens, wrote a feverish response that went internationally viral within minutes. And how I believe that we don't need to choose between what makes us happy and whole and what can change the world. I was six months pregnant with my first son and the holidays were coming. Getting ready to be a new mom had me reflecting a lot about my personal values and whether I was truly living them out. I had recently vowed to make more space in my life for those values, specifically creative writing. I realized that despite my efforts to create generative feminist processes of rural community development, I had depleted myself by conforming to patriarchal notions of leadership. I was trying to be in charge of everything. I was pushing my ideas onto other people, and I was choosing work before health, well-being, and my creative practice. So in December, I resigned from several community boards and committees, and I gave myself permission to rest and step back. I remember saying to myself many times, your writing can be your activism but I wasn't quite sure what that looked like yet. One morning I was having coffee with a friend when my phone buzzed. I glanced and saw there was a tweet from our city administrator, not a normal thing to have, me contact, to have him contact me that way, but I ignored it until I was walking to my office. Then I opened up my phone and saw a headline in German that translated to, a Der Spiegel reporter has manipulated his own stories to a large extent. I knew in that moment that my life was about to change. My slow, pregnant walk in the snow turned into a jog and then a sprint to my office. I burst through the front door and ran straight to my desk, frantically plugging in my computer. The headlines blurred in front of me. I scanned frantically through a rough translation of an article which explained that Klaus Relodius, an award-winning reporter from the high-profile German magazine Der Spiegel, had resigned after being caught by his colleague for fabricating not one, but dozens of his articles. My friend Jake and I were texting frantically. You see, Relodius had visited our town for five weeks, almost a year ago, and then he had published a lengthy article about us that was titled, Where They Pray for Trump on Sundays. His article wasn't just biased, it was complete fiction. It's true, we live in a conservative area, so there's plenty of real stories he could have covered to tell the story he came to find. But for some reason, he had gone through the trouble of making everything up. He painted the picture of a bleak, isolated town that has no access to national news and is obsessed with the movie American Sniper. Uh, he described a welcome sign with stars and stripes that does not exist. And he crafted complete lies about people in our town, including the owner of our Mexican restaurant, who he said was dying of kidney disease, she's not, and voted for Trump, she didn't. And our city administrator, Andrew, who carries a gun, he doesn't, and has a stuffed wild boar in his office. Nope. Over the last few months, Jake and I had been crafting a response in a shared Google Doc, fact-checking every strange little anecdote by talking to the individuals he had profiled. We were in a holding pattern with a near final draft, trying to figure out how and when to share it. We had no idea writing this rebuttal that we were about to get involved with an international media scandal. Back at my office that December when the news broke, the baby in my belly was doing backflips as I scanned our draft, getting the essay ready to post. I remember hesitating on the closing few paragraphs, which were in my voice. How do you defend your community against fake news without resorting to blind Pollyanna boosterism? 
I started to delete some of the sentences where I shared the raw sadness and frustration I had felt since the 2016 election, not understanding how the region I lived in could vote so strongly for a racist, sexist leader. But my friend Jake stopped me. Michelle, you're a young female community leader, and you're about to raise a child here. You are completely entitled to say what you think. He's a good friend. So I hit post and tweeted the article out. The rest of the day is surreal. Part of me sort of hoped our little article would just dissolve into the social media void. But the opposite happened. The post went from 1,000 views to 15,000 to 30,000 in a matter of hours. The Minneapolis Star Tribune called, the New York Times called, and then starting around 3.30 a.m. the next morning when Europe was waking up, there was requests every five minutes. The BBC, German Public Radio, NPR, the CBC, Huffington Post, Fox News, and dozens more. Jake and I met up at my office at sunrise and took interviews until dinner time. The next day, a new reporter from Der Spiegel arrived in town to clean up the mess and apologize. The media inquiries went on for another week, right up until Christmas Eve day. I did one last phone interview sitting in the car with a backseat full of presents at the liquor store while my husband bought wine for our family dinner. Things were very quiet until a month or so later when an editor from the New York Times invited me to write an op-ed. She asked, so now that this is over, what do you actually want to tell the community about rural life? For the next two months, I found myself writing a much slower piece, a rather personal account of what it's been like to be a homecomer in Fergus Falls for the last eight years, and why it feels urgent and powerful to commit to this place at this time. Writing it helped me begin to sort out the feelings I had had since the Der Spiegel incident. How many of us, particularly rural women, are walking a confusing tightrope between fighting the narratives that scapegoat our rural neighbors and when, at the same time, we can easily be discarded and silenced by those same neighbors for questioning and articulating the systems of privilege and power that are dragging our communities down. When I sent in my final draft, I still didn't quite believe it would be published. At my 37-week prenatal checkup, my doctor asked me if I would be writing anymore. I mentioned to him that I had just written an essay for the New York Times and that I was nervous about it being published. Well, he said, writing is a type of activism, isn't it? And he said this as we listened to my baby's heartbeat. The article was published in the Sunday Review that weekend, and then, only one week later, my son Ashton arrived. In between the article being published and going into labor, I tried my best to sift through the hundreds of messages I received in response. In some ways, I think my son came early to protect me in that moment and to help me step into my power. Because several people hated my article, but for opposing reasons. I was too liberal and had somehow thrown my community under the bus by writing about our challenges. And I wasn't progressive enough because, being a straight white woman, I was able to move back home and fit right in. One man from New York even mailed me a letter angrily asking why I didn't own up to what rural voters did to our country. But for every criticism, I got a dozen heartfelt messages from other homecomers who shared their stories with me, and those messages reminded me not to apologize for taking the opportunity to use my voice and connect. As I received mixed responses from the community, I also thought about how too often people in my town with incredibly strong convictions are hesitant to speak up about urgent issues. They're afraid of losing friends, donors, or business. And this is understandable. Living and working in rural is a long game. But my hope is that we can think bigger and remember that speaking up is a way to find each other across the abyss. And finally, in the midst of these bigger issues, there's something else that's been on my mind. When I think back on the decision to step back from traditional roles in leadership and write more, I think about how the world responded and told me something. Yes, do that. As William Stafford says in my favorite poem, the darkness around us is deep. These days it can feel like everything and nothing we do matters. All that I know from this experience is that we need all types of leaders right now. 
But most of all, we need leaders that are charged up by what makes us whole and happy. Not all of us need to run for office to change the world. Some of us can quietly restore a native prairie, or cook food for friends, or write as our activism. Because what makes us happy and awake and alive just might be the loudest thing we can do to get the world to pause and listen and change. Our last speaker was the first Minnesota Ojibwe woman to become a physician. Over her career, she has been the embodiment of local, rural, and inclusive leadership. Showing up in federal service for 26 distinguished years before taking the helm of Minnesota's largest rural-based private foundation. She is a wife, stepmom, auntie, sister, role model, who loves and is loved. Please help me in welcoming Kathy, Kathleen Annette. You know how you know you're getting old, couple ways. One is people stop saying, gee, you're good looking, and they're saying, you're looking good. <laughs> the second way is you look for the steps. And I noticed I was the only one that used them, so here I am. March 21st, 2005, started off as such a good day, I remember it so well. I boarded a jet to DC, all excited about the meeting ahead with other Indian healthcare professionals to talk about prevention, my favorite topic. As I walked down the concourse at Reagan National, I had an odd sense that something wasn't right. I wondered if my luggage was lost again. I noticed that people were gathered around TVs and CNN was flashing breaking news, heartbreaking news. There'd been a school shooting on the Red Lake Reservation. My chest and my throat tightened and tears filled my eyes and I thought, oh no. I went back to the ticket counter and asked that I immediately be booked back to the Bemidji Airport in Minnesota. Bemidji is about 30 miles from Red Lake. I remember that no questions were asked. I wonder what it was about how I looked or presented myself or acted that made people so accommodating. By early the next morning, I was at the Red Lake Hospital meeting with the staff who had been up all night dealing with the aftermath of 10 people dead and five people injured. I got word from DC that I was to be the on-site logistical coordinator for the Department of Health and Human Services response teams. What was needed? How was the community responding? The questions started coming, and I was ready. I had the relationships, I had the credibility, all from the myriad of interactions with the community and its leaders over years. So when the call came for me to lead, I said, I can, I will. Red Lake Reservation is in northern Minnesota. It's a small and remote place that many who don't know much about rural would discard. They wouldn't be able to see what I saw and what I knew, that it is a place of great resilience and pride. At the time, I was the area director for the Indian Health Services. I was the most senior federal official who was geographically close. Plus, I happened not only to be Ojibwe, I was raised on the Red Lake Reservation. That was my high school. The shooter, a teenage boy, killed his own grandfather, a teacher, a security guard at the school, and five other students before killing himself. I knew the families of so many who experienced losses that day, and I knew the teacher who was killed. Being a physician and having worked with the Red Lake Reservation leadership for years helped. I trusted that the tribe would coalesce and lead, and they trusted me. There was so much to organize, but my most immediate role was to be there to be home, 
And I remember being so very sad, attending so many funerals. It's not very often that I get fiery. It's not my way, or the, really the way of my culture. But when so-called leaders from all over the country showed up to fix things at Red Lake, whether it was someone ringing healing bells or academic researchers there to study a community in stress, my gut told me no. Enough, I said, and they left the room. The tribal leader sitting quietly in the back said, miigwech, thank you. He was proud of me for standing up for Red Lake, for understanding what the community really needed, which was partners to stand with them over the long run as they healed, not to do for them. So when I think of a time when I started a fire, that's what comes to mind. When I found myself stepping up and advocating when it really mattered, for using my voice, for not being afraid, even if my face was getting hot and my temper was rising. My version of fire starting is usually a bit quieter. Usually I find myself fanning other people's fires. But boy, I sure appreciated that day when someone came alongside me to fan mine. The elder in the back of the room that day who said, Miigwech, thank you. I see it every day in the work of Blandin Foundation and among even the smallest rural communities. Seeds of hope planted, polarity recognized, discarded. We have things to get done. We will get things done. I'm not the first to say it, but I certainly believe it. Change happens through relationships and at the speed of trust. I will be ever grateful to all the partners who emerged to stand with the tribe. Those first on the scene as they dealt with those who were shot, their friends, their neighbors. Creating a temporary morgue in the library of the tiny Indian hospital. Starting to work through the grief of family and community members. Within hours, partners were on site. Neighboring border towns sharing ambulances, other tribes, counselors, hospital staff temps coming to say, we can fill in, we can help, educators, law enforcement, communication specialists, philanthropic leaders, including the Blandin Foundation, came forward immediately asking, how can we help? So many partners. I cannot imagine the outcome if there had been no one to stand with the tribe. But even in those days of terrible tragedy were the seeds of hope, the absolute commitment to protect the children, the urgency to get the school back together, to create a promising future. The kind of hopefulness that I've seen here in the last day and a half, it's pretty amazing, the stories, you standing for resilient and vibrant communities too. Wow. Red Lake Communities established youth leadership councils and strengthened the local Boys and Girls Club. The tribe and partners took on drug and alcohol problems, youth leadership, even cancer prevention. All elements of the community came together and leadership mattered as the community healed and emerged stronger than before, resilient and hopeful. Resilient and hopeful. I was on site at Red Lake for two months. It was the hardest work that I've ever had to do and the best teacher that I've ever had. That relationships built over time and through authentic, committed interaction are irreplaceable. That digging deep for courage gets easier every time. It's like a muscle, the more you do it, the stronger you become that even small rural places and tribal communities are rich with capacity and assets if you look with clear eyes and open hearts. And that leadership, or fire starting, is something that you have to do yourself, but you can't do it alone. The bottom line, for me, is when courage is needed, I rely on my values, hope, relationships, trust, and when I am needed, I heard here. I heard. I am here. Thank you. you
Thank you to all of our fire starters for the brave and courageous way they showed up. I'm so grateful. I know we're so grateful. Um, and thank you. I want to invite up Whitney Kimbleco. Like to let us close with um, the words of wisdom from uh, a dear friend of mine, someone I met in the redwoods of California. It was the most random meeting um, of all, and since then she's been uh, a participant in the National Rural Assembly as a fire starter and as a leader. Um, she's a warrior and a peacemaker um, and a dear friend, and she's with uh, the organization Preemptive Love. Her name is Diana Ostrich. I just want to thank you all. Um, I don't know if you get to experience this very often, but being in this room has just been percolating hope for me. I have just heard so many of your stories. Um, so it's just been a little bit of a dream to be in a place that was created by women to empower women. Um, so just thank you. Let's well, just thank you. It's just been such an honor, and I feel like we've only been here barely 24 hours, and I feel like I've traveled across the country into your small towns, into the people that you love and the people that you're fighting for. So thank you so much. Thank you for choosing to fight for the land, for economic justice, for voices to be heard, and for a future that is worthy of all our rural children. As Jackie Shelton Green said, I am here. Each one of you is saying, I am here with your lives, with your persistence to speak up and to show up, to flip the narratives that people are making about the people that you love and the places where you stand. It's how you're building thriving rural communities instead of letting people dismiss poverty as those people's issues. This isn't only about us taking up space. It's about creating new tables. It's spreading your fire to the woman who is sitting next to you today. I'm a peacemaker, and the only reason I've decided that I'm going to give everything I have to peace is because I've seen what war costs us, intergenerational trauma. In my family, I'm the third um, I'm a third army veteran, and it seems to be something that we generationally continue to hand down. And I have a dream for my sons, that they will not fight in a war. It takes decades to rebuild what war destroys and takes from us in a moment. Last night, Prairie Rose Seminoles said, it took intention to get our country into the chaos that we are in, and it will take all of our intention to fix it. Ladies, the intention in this room is on high. It is boiling over and percolating. I have sat next to women who are deeply cho choosing to intend that things will be different in their communities. There is medicine in this room, and these women are here for you. When you're tired, when your intention is feeling too heavy, or when life gives you the second sucker punch of the day, reach out to one of us or all of us in this room. We are a wildfire and we'll give you another spark when you are feeling tired and yours has gone out. So be vulnerable, be tired, be angry at the system that hurts the people you love, but just don't quit because we need you exactly who you are. Jackie left us with this gift of words yesterday. Sister, we are each other's medicine. Friends, thank you for bringing your medicine to us. We are so grateful for you. I'm going to leave you, since we started with a poem, I feel like I want to send you out with a poem because in this time, um, music and art our writers, um, as Jackie said, she said she has a dance hall in her human museum. So we need a little bit, um, we, meet, we need a little bit of joy as we go out and continue. So this is a poem called Wild Embers by Nikita Gill. We are the descendants of the wild women you forgot. We are the stories you thought would never be taught. 
They should have checked the ashes of the women they burned alive because it takes a single wild ember to bring a whole wildfire alive. Thank you so much for coming. And I don't know what Whitney has on tap, but I see this as a convening. Um, I grew up on tribal lands um, where Kathleen is. And one of the thing is the ceremonies, the powwows, the round dances, they were part of the community remembering who they were, remembering their connection to the land and their relationship to each other. And so I hope when we come back next year, it will be a remembering and we will share our stories and we will see hope here and hope there and hope there. From Minnesota, northern Minnesota, um, down to Mississippi, we want to hear your stories and hold them. And I'm going to lead you with one last quote because I lied. Um, this is from George Erasmus. He's an Aboriginal leader from Canada. He says, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. Common memory must be created. We have created a common memory. I have heard stories from places that I don't live. I have heard stories of resilience and of people I don't know but you love. So next year, if we can come and continue to build this common memory, our sons and our daughters are going to ask us what happened. What happened in 2018, 2019, 2020? And I want us to be able to share a common memory of what we have done together. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the closing session of the National Rural Women's Summit, which was produced by the National Rural Assembly, a part of the Center for Rural Strategies. Find out more about these groups at thedailyyonder.com. You can listen to all our stories at the Making Connections News website and podcast. This is Mimi Pickering reporting for Making Connections News. Thank you for listening.